0: If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Psalm 88. Psalm 88, you'll find this on page 494 in the Pew Bible. As I mentioned uh, during the announcements, this is probably the saddest psalm in the Psalter. It ends as it begins in grief. The last word is darkness. It's a part of the Psalms of Lamentation. There are actually more Psalms of Lament in Scripture than Psalms of Praise. And we can be thankful for that because it helps us have the words to uh, explain our experience and pray about our experience of life in a world of miseries which flesh is heir to. Let me invite you to consider the experience of the psalmist and our own then from Psalm 88. This is the word of God. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master according to the Mahalath Leneoth, a masculine of the Ezrahite. O oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your waves." Selah, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him together in prayer. Our Father, teach us your word and speak to our hearts for your glory and our eternal good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is a psalm about tremendous suffering. Some religions teach that uh, suffering is actually an illusion. Pain isn't real. Uh, Perhaps you know that the cult, Christian Scientism, by Mary Baker Eddy, teaches such a thing. It actually comes out of Eastern religions, Hinduism and Buddhism, this idea that pain and sorrow, if you could just realize they're not real... Uh, then then you would be much better. I wonder how those folks handle it when in the middle of the night they crack their shin on the edge of the bed. Pain real to them at that moment? And I wonder how folks who would hold such a view handle uh, standing at the graveside of a friend. Pain and sorrow are very real. Others will say, believe and you won't suffer. Believe in Jesus, look, and it'll all go away. I mean, after all, pain is your own fault, always. If you had believed, you wouldn't have experienced it. If you would believe now, God would take it away. And isn't it interesting, just as we read, that didn't work for Jesus. He never doubted God, never distrusted God, and yet suffered tremendously. Some well meaning, very well meaning evangelicals say misleading things, as I was taught to say when I was in college, to tell people that really the gospel is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And to make that sound like, in the ears of the listener, that once you're a Christian, You'll only sing, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And I'm so happy. So very happy. I've got the love of Jesus in my heart. I almost sang that for you. Few Christians uh, appreciate that you can also sing the blues. And the Psalms are filled with singing the blues. And we need to learn to sing the blues. We need songs that sing the blues. Uh, here, the writer is a man who sang the blues. His name was Haman. We don't know a whole lot of Haman, the Ezraite. Uh, the Chronicles tells us that he was the father of 14, uh, 14 boys and three girls, and uh, that he was one of the choir directors appointed by David to lead the congregation of Israel in praise and in worship. He was both a singer and a musician. And I refuse to indulge the thought that having 17 children was the cause of so much challenge in his life. Or that it was simply because he had a musician's temperament. We don't know from this text why, uh, what brought about exactly. But he felt all alone and crushed and crushed by the Lord and his circumstances what we do know is that he's a believer and he's in a deep pit and in a deep pit for a long time and that's a good reminder to us that service doesn't immunize you from suffering that because you're a christian or a faithful christian that you will somehow have everything go well in this life that isn't a promise the bible makes to us And so this psalmist experienced something of what uh, William Cooper wrote about that we just sang. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And you can't see where his feet are. But he's coming in a storm and deep in unfathomable minds of never Uh, failing skill he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will his purposes will ripen fast unfolding every hour the bud may have a bitter taste that's what we're talking about but sweet will be the flower is the words of cooper and so let me invite you to consider this psalm and let me sort of outline it for you and where we're headed in, in four parts first in verses 1 and 2 you see the appeal this sufferer makes to God. You see him cry out to the Lord. In verses 3 through 9 you see the anguish this sufferer feels. Verses 10 to 14 the argument he makes in prayer to God. And then in verses 15 to answer, 15 to 18 the answer he receives. So four things this morning. First, the appeal he makes. He's praying, but he doesn't feel heard. And he prays, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. In fact, verse 9 at the end every day I call out upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. So he's praying and he's appealing to his Father God in heaven, and he doesn't feel heard or answered. And and thankfully, this psalm then tells us that it's possible to have the experience of being a believer and not feel like the Lord is hearing and answering you according to your prayer. If you're going through a season where prayer has not been heard and you thought that the Bible never teaches that true believers endure such things, you would be tremendously discouraged. And actually, what would you think about yourself? You would think, I'm not even a Christian. But this psalm tells you us you can have an experience like this. Oh, Lord, verse 14, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? This is how he feels. My prayers are on deaf ears. Heaven seems like a brick wall and my prayers are bouncing back at me. Now, ultimately, we can say, we can step back and say there is a bigger picture by which to understand that experience. But in the midst of that experience, praying and praying and not feeling like you're getting any answer, maybe it's asking the Lord for the salvation of somebody in your family or a friend, and you've been praying that prayer for decades and decades, and it's not answered Maybe it's you've got some physical ailment and you've asked the Lord to take it away and he doesn't take it away. Maybe it's some great sorrow of relational conflict that's just left you broken hearted and alone and lonely. And the Lord hasn't turned that around. It's possible to experience those things and the psalmist can sympathize with you. I wonder if you sympathize with the psalmist. I wonder then, do you sympathize also with fellow brothers and sisters who are in these kinds of circumstances? We ought to be, this psalm ought to remind us to be sensitive when people are enduring this kind of trouble. That's the first thing I want you to see. See, he appeals to God. And then notice the description of the anguish that he feels uh verses three through nine he is a uh, brutally honest here and uh notice just even just the beginning of that psalm 88 verse three for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to shield to the realm of death and uh before we dive into the details of that passage, just recognize as he describes his anguish uh, that he's a good model for people who lead in worship, people who write songs to be sung by the people of God, people who sing those songs or preach sermons uh, about those themes. We don't have to fake joy for others when we don't have it ourselves. We don't have to pretend everything is okay when not everything is. We need uh, Psalm 88 because it doesn't resolve. It's, as best I know, the only psalm, as others have described it as well, it's the only lamentation that doesn't resolve. Usually lamentations, the the psalmist calls out to God, he describes how terrible things are, and then he'll say something like, but you, O oh Lord, you rescued me. Or, but you, O oh Lord, you will save me. And, and, or, but you, O oh Lord, have promised me heaven. Usually the lament sort of resolves here. That last line, it resolves in no way, shape, or form to the satisfaction of the one who just wants it all to seem like it turns out okay. My companions have become darkness, he says. Darkness is the last word. In other, it's almost like he's saying my companions are darkness. Uh, and, uh, and so we can be thankful that there's a psalm like this among the 150. I think we can also be thankful uh, that we only have one psalm like this among the 150 But we do need psalms like this. We need songs like God moves in a mysterious way. We need songs like we'll sing after the sermon, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. We've got to be able to sing this kind of stuff. Uh, Now, notice um, what it is that he's uh, feeling, what it is that he's experiencing. Verse 3, he feels like he is dying. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol, or the realm of the dead. Uh, End of verse 4. He feels weak. I'm a man who has no strength. Uh, He feels unsupported, verse 5. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. He feels far from God, at distance to the Lord, and this is perhaps the worst loneliness of all for him. Not that he's dying or near the pit, but that he feels like the Lord isn't there with him in that experience. He feels all alone. You may know that he is not all alone, but he certainly feels all alone. Don't be surprised if you feel that way too at times. Now, how did he get this way? Did he get this way by some tragic accident of history? No. How did he get this way? Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep why am i suffering under this burden verse seven your wrath he's talking to god your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with your waves why am i all alone in this verse eight you have caused my companions to shun me you have made me a horror to them end of verse eight why can't i get past this i'm shut in so that i cannot escape Verse 9, and there's seemingly no hope for changed circumstances. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. You see what he's saying? Every day I appeal and every day I get nothing. Not what I wanted, certainly. And this is what makes his experience even darker, right? If you've never experienced it, give thanks. Thanks. But don't promise another believer they'll never experience that. Uh, The psalmist here, as many have noted, has a theology that's very different from the theology of Rabbi Harold Kushner. Uh, It's a little dated now as a book, but a very famous rabbi wrote a book, uh, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, in which he says, basically, you're a good person, And God has nothing to do with the bad things that happen to you. He would love to help you out, but He can't because He's not in control of everything. And if if you just come to terms with the realization that God's not in control of everything, and that He's not in control of your circumstances, then you'll get relief. That's not at all what the psalmist is saying here. The psalmist knows that God is sovereign. He knows that God is in control of all things. That God handles sin sinlessly. God puts up with and governs the wicked as they do wickedly. Not because he approves, but he is in charge. And in this world, in this lifetime, he allows sinners to to do horrible things and he allows miseries to come because all flesh is heir to those miseries. He knows God is in control of all things like Job knew God is in control. In Job's suffering, he never says God isn't in control, right? You never once find him comforting himself in the thought that, well, God doesn't really know or God doesn't really care or God doesn't have any power to do anything about this, right? No, he confesses Job 1... Uh, 21, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And, and then God permits Job not only to have his children taken from him, but God permits Satan to afflict the body of Job with terrible sores. And his wife basically says, look, why don't you curse God and die? So she's no help to him. And he replies, Job 2, verse 10, Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He knows God is in control. Like Jesus knows that God is in control, as we read in our scripture reading, when he says to Pilate, You would have no authority to do what you've done to me, which is flog me. Have your soldiers mock me and you're about to crucify me. And you would have no authority to do such unless it was given to you from above. Because there is a greater sovereign at work. Like Jesus, like Job, the psalmist knows his God is in control. He has freedom then to cry out to that God with his complaint. Because to whom else will he go to for help? To whom else... Can he go to for help? If God isn't in control, why would you bother praying? He can't help you is what you're saying. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. He knows, as Jesus said, every hair on our head is numbered. He knows, as Psalm 139 says, all the days ordained for me were written in God's book before one of them came to be. So where do you take your despair and your depression when you're suffering... Where do you go with it? The psalmist here goes to the Lord with it. And I just want to caution us all not to go to other deities. Some of us are tempted to drown our sorrows. And that's dangerous because alcohol is a depressant and it actually takes us lower. It doesn't really lift us higher. Some of us rely on medication to mask our sorrows physicians sometimes will be tempted to prescribe medications for depression which will take away all sorrow and make us always happy and i just want to say be cautious be careful Look, in dire circumstances, Proverbs 31, 6, and 7 actually commends that, that physicians would do such a thing. Give strong drink to the one who's perishing. Wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty. Remember their misery no more. But the unintended consequences of habitually using something that numbs you from all experience of grief and sorrow and misery that keeps you from ever feeling sad might also keep you from thinking clearly and responding properly to a world that is sad and to people that grieve where we should grieve evil and to do so is appropriate. So just a word of caution. Then... Some of us uh, handle it by just letting loose, right? I mean, just letting loose and complaining to others. And I want to say to us that we should be careful of the affirmation of others that strengthens in us a bitter or resentful spirit for our circumstances. Look, it is one thing to be honest with God and to be honest with trusted friends. About how miserable you are. And it's okay to be honest. The psalmist says so. But it's another thing to sort of seek affirmation for being resentful about those things. Or some of us handle it by never acknowledging the burden of it. We stuff it and we act like stoics and we pretend that all's good, no problems. gotta put up a happy face and uh, keep my reputation as a good christian as A good christian would never be sad and i'm just saying look there are other ways to deal with things differently than the psalmist does and i'm commending to us all the psalmist's way of faith and make no mistake His way is a way of faith. This is an affirmation of faith on his part. Anguish is a sign of true faith. In his anguish he says, Why, O Lord, do you hide your face from me? He's not unbelieving. He's believing and looking to the Lord. So there you see something of his anguish. And then you see that he argues with God. And I want you to see the argument he makes in verses 10 to 14. His argument kind of goes like this. Look, I want to praise you, Lord, and I can't do that if I'm dead. I want to praise you, Lord. I can't do that from the grave. I want to tell people about you, Lord, and if my lips are silenced, I can't do that. Uh, so answer me. Let I me mean, notice the way he puts it, verse 10. Uh, do you work wonders for the dead? And you might imagine as others have put it you might imagine the Lord responding yes actually I do work wonders for the dead and he asks end of verse 10 will the departed spirits rise up to praise you and you might hear the Lord saying well as a matter of fact dear Old Testament believer they will rise up and praise me verse 11 will your steadfast love be declared in the grave Yes, actually, in my son's grave, the greatest expression of my faithful love. Or will your faithfulness be shown in Abaddon, in the abyss, in the depths of hell? Yes, because my love for you in and through my son in enduring your sufferings for you in the pit is the very expression of my faithfulness to you. Are your wonders known in darkness, verse 12? Yes, they're known in darkness, verse 12b, or the end of it. Will your righteousness be known in the land of forgetfulness? Well, actually, it will. It will. The psalmist, of course, is highlighting, uh, and, and by speaking of the finality of death, and he's lost from this life where he can sing the praises of the Lord, it does, by contrast... Uh, point us to the reality of the hope that we have in the resurrection. There is a greater hope beyond this grave. And ultimately that hope is not just that our soul goes to be with the Lord. But that one day our body rises from the dead. A body incorruptible. Everlasting. A spiritual body. And reunited to a soul made perfect. And we live together with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And so... Um, Whatever lack of clarity an old testament believer would have had about those things, and the new makes things much more clear to us, yet that old and new testament believer had that hope. But on this side of the resurrection, right, of our Lord Jesus, we see it better than he, but it is easy to lose sight of. And here, the psalmist is emphasizing one side of that equation, perhaps he in the depths of his misery, has lost sight of some of that hope and promise. But it's also possible on this side of the resurrection of Jesus and as the experience of a genuine Christian, to lose sight of it too. We just sang God Moves in a Mysterious Way by William Cooper. Cooper lived an extremely difficult life. I've told some of you the story of his life before. His mother died a few days after his birth. And the maids told him as he grew up that she had just gone away for a time and would come back. He knew that wasn't true. But they so persisted in telling him it, he he began to believe that it was true. So you can imagine the heartbreak when he again realized no she isn't and then his father perhaps in dealing with his own grief not knowing what to do with him shipped him away to boarding school at age six so he'd lost mother and in a way lost father and there at boarding school he was terribly abused by older boys he even describes how there was one older teenager whose whose belt he couldn't even bear to look up to and see. He simply looked down at the feet of the man, the young man. He fell in love with a woman. and That woman's father permitted them to see one another for a lengthy period of time, but then ultimately forbade the marriage, which was a terrible heartbreak to him. He suffered tremendous anxiety about his vocation in life, his calling, his work. Uh, he was apprenticed into law, which he did not want to do. And he says, day and night, I was upon the rack lying down in horror and rising up in despair. The, another lawyer embarrassed him publicly at one of his uh, interviews uh, just just to show that he wasn't up for it it was a terrible distress to him in severe mental distress over many sorrows he tried to take his own life on at least three occasions we know of he was sent to live at St. Albans uh, where he was treated uh, very compassionately by a physician who attended to the mentally ill there he read the bible he heard the gospel he caught a glimpse of Romans chapter 3, verse 25. You might look at that sometime. And he says this about it. Immediately I received strength to believe, and the full beams of the Son of righteousness shone upon me, and I saw the sufficiency of the atonement. He had made my pardon sealed in His blood, and all the fullness and completeness of His justification. And in a moment I believed and received the gospel. His health began to slowly improve. After a time, uh, he uh, chose to stay there, though he was well enough to leave, he, but then eventually he left and went to live with the family of a pastor and his wife, and there he made friends with the very now famous John Newton, and together they wrote the only hymns. So Cooper's one example, Newton, had a, they had a tremendous friendship, uh, but depression came around again and again in his life. Becoming a Christian didn't just eradicate his sorrows. And in late 1772, he penned his final hymn, which we just sang. God moves in a mysterious way. And about three weeks later, a great cloud of mental darkness enveloped him. He had a dream one night that almost utterly destroyed him mentally and spiritually. He never uh, divulged the contents of that dream. But through it, he came to believe that he was utterly forsaken by God without hope of salvation, gone forever. Now, it's fascinating. He never denied the faith. He believed the promises of the gospel were true. He believed that he had been a Christian trusting in Christ and saved and was saved. But that there was one exception in all of human history to those whom the Lord saves. With regard to does the Lord hold on to them. He believed there was one exception. The one person that the Lord saved and then finally rejected. Was himself. He came to believe that about himself. Contrary to his what I would call proper theology. That when the Lord saves you. He keeps you. He he, he also became so mentally distressed or perhaps mentally ill. That he began to believe that butcher's meat was actually human flesh so you can see he was he becoming irrational mentally and we might say spiritually he believed that he was doomed to the lowest place of hell below judas if there's such a thing and he had truly crazy thoughts many believe he kind of went insane for a time he eventually went on to become poet laureate of england Uh, But um, he lived for many, many decades after that. But my point is this. It's possible for genuine Christians to experience such horrendous bouts of depression that they see no reason for hope anymore. And so the psalmist was in anguish and he appeals to God. Look, if I'm gone, I can't praise you in this world. If I'm gone, I can't talk about you in this world. Shouldn't you want to help me so that I can honor you in this world? And we might say, well, it's not a bad argument, but this world is not all there is. Now look, one last thing. What's the answer he then received to his prayer? Notice the answer, verses 15 to 18. The answer he receives is actually more of the same. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your tears, I'm helpless, Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. And darkness is my closest friend. Or my closest companion, darkness. He's still there at the end of the psalm waiting. And the answer is more of the same. It's not a happy ending. There aren't always happy endings in this world for a believer it's tempting to think that christians are owed a happy life that god somehow ought to make our life easy because christ died for our sins and he did but god doesn't owe us an easy life on that account it can be a blessing to have an easy life you know that it can also be a curse to have an easy life You can imagine that you're right with God because you're wealthy and prosperous and healthy and everything's going well. And you're not right at all with God because you've never trusted Jesus to save you. But everything's easy for you. That can actually be a curse that keeps you from realizing this is a world of misery. And you yourself are justly deserving of the worst misery. We know that this world is not is how it's supposed to be and we also know that this world is not all there is William Cooper who I was telling you about he finally died 27 years later and his friend John Newton remarked hearing of his death I was glad when I heard of it he suffered much here for 27 years but eternity is long enough to make amends for all. And I like to imagine that Cooper, in that split second when his soul left his body and he left this world of misery and met his Savior and saw him face to face, that he, he proved true what he wrote elsewhere in another hymn saying, "...the saints should never be dismayed nor sink in hopeless fear, for when they least expect his aid, the Savior will appear." That may just be at the moment of your death. But it will be a glorious moment. So, is there any hope in the psalm at all for us? Let me highlight two things by way of conclusion. One, notice again verses 1 and 2. Notice that he remembers his help and his hope is in Yahweh, the covenant God of faithfulness. Oh, Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you day and night. Let my prayer come before you and incline your ear to my cry. Uh, Part of it is you recognize that even through all this pain, he's still crying out to the Lord. And we have a Savior whom he calls God my Savior. We have a Savior who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And you can appeal to that Savior too. Keep holding on to him in prayer. And, and there's this second thing. He's, he's not only remembering that God is his help and his hope, but he is continuing to cast himself on the Lord in prayer. He's still talking to God who sustains him through prayer. And, and isn't that the message of Hebrews chapter 4? Hebrews chapter 4 about Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, In our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The image there is when you are at the end of your rope, go to the throne. It's not a throne of judgment. It's not a throne of condemnation. It's a throne of grace that you might receive help perhaps just the help to hold on something better is coming it's called the resurrection let's pray Father in heaven we need this hope and we need it deepened in our hearts we need a stronger conviction sustain those who have but a flickering hope bless you that you don't quench the flickering flame you don't crush the bruised reed so sustain the weary with your promise in jesus name i pray amen amen let's stand and sing dear refuge of my weary soul